I want to thank you ladies for letting us guys get away. And if we don't return uh, guys back from times alone in men's ministry, better husbands, better lovers of Jesus, uh, better dads, then we're not, we're not doing our job right. I was, because I was on the retreat with the two Daves, I knew that this announcement was going to be made today. And I thought it was providential that the topic uh, for us to look at is the imperative of friendship in the, in the body of Christ. And I've gone through something similar to what uh, Dave and his wife Kathy and the kids are going through. And it occurs to me that the very pain um, that you all feel and that he feels is it's a good thing. It's because the relationship is so precious that it hurts. Uh, so let's look at uh, just a, the biblical, take a biblical look at the kinds of connections that we are privileged to have in the body of Christ. If you would open the word uh, to Hebrews 10, verse 19, I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Hebrews 10, starting with verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Would you allow me to commit this time to our Lord? Lord, we ask now that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law, from your word. We pray in your name. Amen. One of the privileges of being engaged in men's ministry is, is meeting people around the country. And I did get to meet uh, a Navy pilot named Tom Joyce who shared a story with me that I want to pass on and start off our time thinking about relationships with. Uh, he tells the story of uh, being uh, commanding an F-14 squadron. Uh, this story took place shortly after the tailhook scandal in the Navy when a great many Navy pilots were uh, convicted of sexually um, assaulting females. And uh, the, the problem, uh, the number of people involved was mostly from the West Coast F-14 community. Tom was handpicked to replace the commanding officer and the executive officer who were both relieved from, of their duties because of their involvement in the, the tailhook scandal. So he went to that squadron and took over, and uh, they left port on the, on the carrier and were, were engaged in moving to their destination. And they got to uh, the first port visit. And Tom gathered his 36 officers in the ready room before they went into port. And these are the words that he, that he used in addressing them. He said, I know what the background of this squadron has been. You've lost a CO and an XO because of that. 
But things have changed. Here's what I'm going to do. We're heading into a port visit tomorrow. And if it comes to my attention that any one of you men has done anything immoral behind your wife or girlfriend's back, I'm going to send you home. I don't care where we are on deployment. I'm going to send you home. And one, you will pay your own way home. And two, you can knock on the door and explain to your wife or girlfriend why you came home. You could hear a pin drop in the ready room. So these guys file out, and they are upset, and Tom can tell. And one young lieutenant stays behind. He comes up to Tom and says, permission to speak freely, sir. Tom says, sure. The guy says, you're an idiot. Tom goes, I didn't mean that freely. (laughs) (laughs) You're an idiot. You can't lay your morals on us. You can't tell us what to do during our time. Uh, you know, and Tom said, well, let me, let me answer that. Number one, adultery is a violation of the military code of justice. Number two, go ahead and try me. You'll be the first one to arrive at home. Well, again, morale was pretty low for a while, but they did see some action. They got in combat. Things kind of returned to normal. They accomplished their mission. They returned to port happened to arrive the 23rd of December, and in a flyover uh, over the Miramar Naval Air Station, Tom led uh, uh, 10 of those planes. They landed. He got there first, and so he took off his flight gear, and as we, each one of them landed and they took their gear off, he went up to every one of them, and he said, on behalf of a grateful nation, I welcome you back to the United States. Thanks so much for your great work in following my leadership. Now go say hello to your family, and Merry Christmas. And Tom says, you know what happened? Nearly every one of those officers kind of didn't want to say it publicly, but kind of leaned in close and said, thanks for holding me accountable. Thanks for helping me do the right thing. Just completely secular group of guys, no evidence that any of those guys were believers. Well, if we put uh, sort of a theological lens over what happened there, we would call that common grace. God used accountability to restrain the naval officers who were uh, not necessarily Christians to restrain their sinful impulses. But this morning, I'd like to examine the saving grace side of accountability and how we Christians find strength inside the faith community to empower us to resist temptation, to Choose a pathway which will honor the God that we love. And so let's dig into, and let's first set the context for these verses. We're going to look a little bit more at 24 and 25, but don't want to skip over the importance of the context. So in these verses, 19 through 25, 26, the seven verses that we looked at, Uh, This is the transition of this author from the story of the gospel of Jesus being superior to all the Old Testament types. He's the real deal. His blood is what actually atones for our sacrifices. And now in these seven verses, he's making a transition to the application part. So what? Because of God's grace, so what? But before he gets into specific commands, he gives us three sort of imperatives that that are sort of logical implications of the story of grace. If we get grace, if we get the story of Jesus' blood saving us, and it goes from our heads down into our hearts, 
then there's three imperatives that will emerge, he says to us. Uh, and so look at in the text, again, verses 19 through, uh, through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, now he's going to give this sense, is a, is a two-sentence summary of the gospel again. So we've got the overall summary. Then we see the word therefore, which is a hinge verse telling us that all that has gone be, before is the reason for this. Therefore, this is what I'm going to say in the future. So that therefore marks these seven verses. But then he does a quick summary of the first two of what we've seen that has happened. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that opened to us through the curtain. And there's a, that references to both the veil in the temple, allowing us into the holy of holies, into the very presence of a holy God, and his own body, Jesus, being ripped apart so that we could have that access. Since we have confidence to enter uh, by a new and living way opened for us the curtain, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. And then we see in the text three imperatives. Let us, let us, let us. We're going to look again briefly at the first two and then spend more time in the third. So let us, verse 22, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Jesus' blood was shed for that privilege so that the guilt and the shame that gets between us and a holy God could be destroyed forever and we can be restored to intimacy with God himself. So let us draw near and enjoy that intimacy. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And why do we draw near right there in the text? Because we're clean. We've been washed. The blood of Jesus has made us clean in the sight of a holy God, and we're clothed in that righteousness of Christ. And we also draw near, and the, the, this is an imperative. God invites us to draw near, and we know from other passages of Scripture that he wants us to draw near as a father draws near to his son, and, and he, he uses the intimate terms of personal relationships, of being adopted into his family circle and belonging to him. And, he, and, and this command in, in this text is, is a command to enjoy that intimacy with God himself. And then the other analogy, of course, the, the love of a bridegroom for the bride. Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. We talked a little bit about this at the men's seminar. A guy that many of us know, Scotty Smith, tells the story of coming, sort of sliding in and doing a wedding ceremony, and he's there with the bridegroom beside him, and uh, the ceremony continues, and the bridesmaids come down the aisle, and, and then the uh, maid of honor comes down the aisle, and, and then the flower girl comes down the aisle, and then, you know, the music swells, and the bride, uh, bride's mother stands up, and the big oak doors at the back of the church are thrown open, and there stands this, the bride in all of her radiance and glory. And the bridegroom takes off like a shot and throws his arms around his bride. If you belong to Jesus Christ, do you believe he feels that way about you? See, he does. Draw near. He does. Because of the first part of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 
the story of the gospel, the story of the blood of Christ, which cleanses us. So the second foundational, first foundational grace imperative is draw near. The second foundational grace imperative, look at verse 23, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Cling to holding fast to God's promises. Again, when the gospel goes from our head to our heart, when we get the story of what God has provided us to atone for our sins, we realize that we don't supply the strength, we don't supply the determination to walk with Christ, we don't supply the power, we don't even supply the faith. The story of grace is God's provision. And so we live by his promise of provision. We lay hold of those promises. It's a natural outflow of of understanding the grace of God. He provides his grace is sufficient. And so the urging, the imperative of grace is to hang on to, lay hold of, live by the promises of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't worry over anything whatever. Tell God every detail of your needs in earnest and thankful prayer. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will keep constant watch over your hearts and minds as they rest in Christ. A promise to grab a hold of, to live our lives by. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. His name is Jehovah Jireh. He will provide, grab a hold of, hold on to that promise. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, and he will make a way of escape. Tremendous promise to grab a hold of. No, uh, I mentioned my grace is sufficient for you. Does anyone lack wisdom? He has only to ask God, and he may be quite sure, James tells us, that the necessary wisdom will be given to him. So, again, the grace, the story of the gospel that we've gotten up to through chapter 10, verse 18. And as we make this transition, first, draw near because of the gospel. Second, hold on to and live your life by faith and trust in the resources that God will provide. And then finally, we get to this third imperative, which has to do with intentional connection in the body, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The third foundation for Christian living that grows out of understanding grace is the provision, the glorious provision of connection, brotherhood, sisterhood, family, in community in the body of Christ. And we're going to see as we dig into this a little bit more, the level of connection that is demanded here, that's required here, that is, that is we're told, challenged with to aspire to is not superficial. Let's, let's look into that. It's not superficial. It's, it's not a connection that can be satisfied by sitting next to someone here on Sunday morning. Uh, it, it is not simply a matter of having a few Christian friends. Uh, a friend of mine uh, uh, often talks about how men, um, Pat Morley uh, says that uh, every man has a few friends to be pallbearers, but do you have a brother you could talk with at 1.30 in the morning uh, about your sister who you found out is doing drugs? Or uh, do you have someone to talk to when your wife tells you that she's leaving you? 
the, uh, the, the challenge here of these relationships uh, is, is to, to be connected at the level of the soul so that that soul can be sharpened. Uh, but let's look at that. Let's see that for ourselves. Verse 24. So the, the, as we look at what we're expected to do here, the encouragements, the three of them here, let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. As one author says, you cannot consider how to stimulate a brother or sister to do a better job of following Christ if you have no idea where he thinks he's failing. Do you see the implication of this command? We're supposed to consider how to provoke one another, how to motivate one another to love and good deeds. It implies a level of knowing each other. It implies a level of soul connection. How can you consider how to motivate him if you're not close enough to him to know where he's fired up and where he's dragging? Not only that, but the word spur or stimulate implies a close enough connection that you've earned the right to sort of irritate one another, which somebody has translated this, to irritate your brother, uh, which is maybe closer to what the Greek word means. The word is only used one other place, in the New Testament, and it's used to describe the sharp disagreement that took place between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. So the the real meaning of this is is a pointed discussion. Uh, When you have kind of have earned the right to challenge a brother or challenge a sister, to be frank, uh, and you love that brother, that bond of love with that brother or sister has built to the point where you have to speak the truth in love because that person has to see that truth. You have that kind of commitment and you recognize the importance of speaking the truth to one another in love. In my world of men's ministry, it means being in kind of relationships with guys, sometimes intentional accountability, others just close enough where you can say, hey, how's your thought life been lately? Or, brother, I know, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that you're rationalizing. Or, Bob, I know you've been busy, but frankly, you've been saying that you're going to have that heart-to-heart talk with your son for a month. You know, you haven't gotten there yet. Maybe I'm not praying hard enough, man. You know, is there something in the way here? How can I help you get that done? These are tough, pointed discussions that we have once in a while. But that's really the kind of discussion that is in view here in the text, that occasional pointed statement that sometimes you have to make to someone because the truth guides us and you love your your brother or your sister uh, enough to speak the truth. Several years ago, um, I looked back into my life and I started, I looked at times when I had a brother, I was having that soul connection, that soul sharpening connection with. And I looked at times when I wasn't having that soul sharpening connection. And it was really sobering uh, what isolation, you know, it, how that impacted me. And here's some of the things I saw, you know, about myself. Uh, first thing I noticed right away is my discipline falls off. You know, eating, exercise, my tongue, praying, you know, those little things. Striking, again, Pat Morley writes, Some men have spectacular failures where in a moment of passion they abruptly burst into flames, crash, and burn. But the more common way to get into trouble evolves from hundreds of tiny decisions, decisions which go undetected, that slowly, like water tapping on a rock, wear down a man's character, not blatantly or precipitously, but subtly over time. 
we get caught in a web of cutting corners and compromise, self-deceit and wrong thinking, which goes unchallenged by anyone in my life. My life. When I started Shady Grove Church, I got a, one of my elders to meet with me every Friday morning because I was afraid that God would tear down me and Shady Grove through, for me, sexual sin. Um, we've got to have somebody in our lives to challenge us. Sometimes that relationship would ebb and flow, though, as people move. Second thing I noticed about myself is I just became physically and, and spiritually tired. You know, iron sharpens iron. There's a heat that provides from rubbing up in the kind of fellowship that we experienced this weekend. It just energizes us as guys. When I went off to young life, uh, when I went off to college at Penn State, my young life leader said, "Gary, I want you to get into a men's Bible study." He said, "You know, Christian life is like a log in a campfire. You take that log out of that campfire, and that passion, that 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 passion for Christ is going to cool." Third thing I noticed about myself is how vulnerable. I became to blind spots. Every day, Christian men and women fail morally, relationally, spiritually, financially, not because they set out to fail, but because of their blind spots. Without friends who are close enough to have their finger on our pulse, we're bound to make some bad decisions. Poor is the the man who has no friends close enough to challenge him. Listen to this verse from, from Proverbs 27, 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. That friend that speaks a little pointedly into your life. We need that. It needs to be earned. It needs to be a relationship there. A couple more things I noticed. One of them is I lose track of God's priorities in the kingdom, which are upside down from the values of the world no, at work, I'm not going to get a plaque for leaving early to come home to make sure I fulfill my, my relationship with my wife and my kids. And so just a group of guys that are saying, yeah, way to go, Gary, you did it right, that, that are going to have, be basing that praise on a completely different set of standards. I need, I need kingdom people in my life. Of course, I noticed that I became more susceptible to secret sin. And, and I think we all know in First John that as long as sin remains in the dark, the darkness has tremendous power, and sin has tremendous power in our lives. And then lastly, I just, I just become, uh, I settle for mediocrity. Again, it's kind of the same as the first one. Iron sharpens iron without soul sharpening from contact. Soul contact with members of the body, I get spiritually dull. I lower the bar. Whatever that looks like in your case, maybe that happens to you. Now, some of you might be sitting there and might say, well, this kind of soulmate is what we should have in marriage if we're married. And I would say, absolutely. And if your guys are not trying to pursue that kind of soulmate with you, then I failed this weekend. (laughs) So that's absolutely uh, what wives need and what marriage is about is soul connection. But that's not what this text is talking about. The author is going to talk about marriage a couple chapters later. This is talking about connection in the body. Connection in the body. It's not... And what it calls us to is a radical dependence on each other in the body of Christ. Well, verse 25 continues with this theme of connection. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Or do not forsake, wouldn't leave, the the assembling of yourselves together. Now, this is certainly the command to be intentional about our schedule. Relationships, you need to be, you know, there needs to be an intentionality about connecting uh, in the body of Christ, though, 
And I want to again uh, say that you can't satisfy this imperative, this command, by simply being in the worship service, as wonderful as this worship service is and as enjoyable as you guys feel it is to be together. Uh, the kind of connection that is, that is being targeted here that needs to have a place on our calendar, I want to suggest to you, yes, it is to come to worship. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together goes along with the fourth commandment. But this command is talking about soul connection. And I can sort of prove that to you with the principles of interpretation, the fancy name being exegesis, but the simple principles of how to interpret Scripture are you take it in context. And this command to not forsake being connected, the verse right before it said we're supposed to consider how to stimulate one another, if we just looked at, the verse that's going to come right after that is that we need to encourage one another. So the level of connection that is expected by this book of the New Testament is a soul-connecting Connection. We'll look at a little bit of before we close at the early church. So this is really, again, a call to, to get into our schedule a place for this kind of soul connection to take place. Uh, a little while ago, a few years ago, I was uh, down in Lawrenceville uh, at the headquarters of the PCA, and I ran into a woman that works for the PCA, and she had a very sad a story to tell about her husband who had divorced her and had an affair. He had been a superstar uh, PCA pastor, is, grew a great big church, uh, is invited to preach at all the prestigious places, but unknown to everyone else, his soul was rotting away inside. And uh, he started abusing alcohol. He uh, started coming home late. He got involved with an affair. It was discovered, and he ended up leaving ministry, leaving his wife. And I asked the woman whose first name was Sue, may I ask you a question? And she said, yeah. I said, did your husband have anybody that he was, that he was meeting with regularly to talk about what was going on in his soul? She hung her head, and she said, no. Now, full disclosure, talking with James on the weekend, Having some brothers there for accountability is not a guarantee. God, we, the guy can still get into sin, still start lying to his brothers. Okay, but what a tremendous power that we saw in the United States Navy illustrated for us is accountability as a, as a means of grace, even for us who are inside the body of Christ. When I heard Sue say that, I thought of something that one of, my, one of the mentors, I didn't know him personally, but that Chuck Swindoll had to say about accountability. He said, I have formed the habit of asking about accountability when stories of someone's spiritual defection or moral failure come to my attention. Without fail, I asked something like this, was so-and-so accountable to anyone on a regular basis? Did he or she meet with one, two, or three for the purpose of giving and receiving counsel, prayer, and support? Without exception, hear me now, without a single exception, the answer has always been the same, No. Here, her husband had been with Christians all day long on the staff and everywhere else, but not a relationship of sharpening each other's soul. Well, Hebrews 10 continues with verse 25, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. The third exhortation uh, requires, again, close relational connection to be obeyed. How can you encourage someone regularly? You have to be close enough to know that that person's down. You have to be close enough to have some sense of what they're doing well so you can know how to breathe fresh life into them. 
the word encourage, the English word, is kind of a neat word, I think, because it really means to give heart to one who has lost heart, one who wants to give up. The Greek word parakaleo, kaleo, to call, para, to the side. It's, it's sort of a one-on-one relationship. I think, a, for me, a great picture is a mom who's teaching her daughter to ride a bike. And she's, she, you know, she's working with her. Don't, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Okay, you can do it. I'm going to let go of you now. You can do it. Okay. And she gets scared, and you grab her and help her. You know, kind of running alongside with the bike. And then she kind of gets to where she can go a little bit longer, and you let go, and she goes a little way, and then she falls. And you run to her and throw your arms around her and say, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. And we can get back up on the bike and I'll help you again. Uh, and we all need a mom in our life, okay? <laughs> we all need that kind of encouragement. The Christian life is hard. And, and, and Paul says, hey, you know, Christian, this is part of what being a Christian is. Just make sure you invest in, in this kind of relationship where this encouragement is going on. God himself doesn't go to alone. He exists as a relationship to the three persons of the Trinity who love each other. And his fingerprints are all over the universe. And so it shouldn't surprise us to find in the ancient literature, Ecclesiastes 4, a verse I heard some guys talking about on the weekend, though I I didn't call attention to it. But you're familiar with these words, but they're so full of wisdom that are just as applicable to us in our walk with Christ. Two are better than one. And then four reasons are given for that. First, because they have a good return for their labor. Mutual assistance when we're working. And I'm telling you, trying to go after Christ and love him and do what we're called to do, we we need somebody helping us do that. Number two, if one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Mutual encouragement when we fall down. Number three, also, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Again, mountain climbers and those who live in many of the deserts of the world get this principle. When a mountain climber beds down at night, he puts his sleeping bag right next to the other mountain climber, and then it starts to get cold. And there is hostility from three sides around that mountain climber coming at him. But the one side, he's getting warmth. And so this is a picture of mutual support when we're vulnerable and how much we're vulnerable in this world. Um, and then the last part of Ecclesiastes 4, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Every day, Christians, men, women, teenagers, kids, lose spiritual battles, in my view, because they're trying to fight them alone. I I just I don't believe God ever intended a Christian to fight his spiritual battles alone. Christianity's always required a vertical commitment to Christ and horizontal commitment to the body and connection in the body so we can help each other fight. So the third exhortation in text in the text 24 and 25, get connected to the body of Christ at the level of soul sharpening. So what does grace lead us to? It leads us to pursue that deeper love relationship with Christ. It leads us to, uh, to trust uh, the promises of God. And what does this text tell us about getting deeper with some brothers or sisters? It says we should have a close enough relationship to have that point of discussion once in a while, that we should have some regularity in our schedule so we can stay current in those relationships that we need to be encouraging one another day 
after day in the body of Christ. Now, if, if this is a biblical idea and not just Gary Eagle's deal, we ought to expect to see this kind of soul connection in the body of Christ. And when we turn to Acts 2.42, we do. And you know that text, the, the, the house church, the church met in small homes. They, in Jerusalem, they, they met up at the temple a little bit, but, but the church didn't even have uh, halls to meet in back then. So the early church met in small house churches, and, and the Christians were largely poor. So we don't know how big the houses were, but we do read this, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves. They were intentional. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the word, to, the, to fellowship. The word koinonia, which means sharing with one another. Sharing their lives with one another to the breaking of bread, which is probably a reference to the Lord's table. And it all is also a reference to enjoying relationships and to prayer. Now, since then, there are thousands of ways that men and women have been connected in the body. Here, you have uh, community groups, and if you aren't in one, that's a great place to start. Sometimes people here in a challenge to get deeper are having the community groups let the guys and the girls sometimes separate and talk about spiritual battles and pray for each other. Whatever the right thing is to help that community group go deeper, or maybe meet with some folks you know in a community group for lunch. A lot of guys... Uh, I, I know James meets with some guys to have a meal with them and just talk about accountability. Lots of people doing that around the country in the PCA. Uh, it can be plugging into the men's study, the women's study. It could be having, a, 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 if you're a, at home with small children, it could be calling up another lady that's a friend who's also home with small children and say, let's try to talk on the phone at, at, on Tuesday morning and when the kids are down, or let's just try to talk and share prayer requests. There are a thousand different ways to find a way to connect in the body of Christ. The question is, are you having that connection in the body of Christ? The message of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is that when you get grace, you will form the brotherhood and sisterhood connections you need. Because it's not just naval officers who need to experience the blessing of accountability. It's all of us who would seek to follow after Christ in a world of darkness. Would you allow me to pray for you? Lord, thank you for so much reality here that, that it's so encouraging that I see on the men's side of it, which I've gotten to know guys are getting together. And I just, I pray that that commitment that can wane would just stay strong and the guys who've been thinking about this, that you make that clear how to do that, that, that wives who are connecting now, perhaps this is a motivation to make sure we're pressing in and, and, and getting to our spiritual battle so we can really support each other. Maybe, Lord, there are those that aren't really connected at all and need to take that step towards some way of connecting. We know in, in this busy world, it's just hard to find a way to make that a priority. Lord, we pray that your spirit would take this text of the word. You bring conviction. You bring leading. You show those here uh, what grace at work the blood of Jesus shed for us in our hearts, what that does 
in just motivating us to make sure we're connected to someone else, a couple other people in the body, where we are sharpening each other at the level of the soul. And we pray that passionately, Lord, because the more we can do that, the more you're honored. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.